0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocol to corporations placing people's lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. Today, I'm drinking a Seagram's
1: Jamaican Me Happy to go along with this case. I'm actually having white wine to go with this case.
0: Mm. Nice. Nice uh, drink to take
1: the edge off of this wild case, to say the least. Yes, let's get into it. On this week's case, we will be discussing the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman and the trial and acquittal of OJ Simpson. This story has so many twists and turns that will make your head spin. Is OJ guilty or did someone get away with the perfect murder? Or is all James Simpson, or OJ as he is better known, started life in the public eye when the running back was selected as the first-round draft pick in the 1969 NFL Draft. This was no surprise, as he was a star football player in college, winning the Heisman Trophy, Maxwell Award, and being crowned a two-time All-American. This continued into his professional career. Nicknamed The Juice, Sisson is the 1973 NFL MVP, and was selected for both the NFL 75th anniversary team and the NFL 100th anniversary team. He still holds several NFL records, including most rushing yards in a season. And for my people that aren't sports fans, just know that this is an amazing career, and he's definitely someone who will go down as one of the best professional football players in history, even though he's very problematic, to say the least. OJ met Nicole Brown when she was waitressing in Beverly Hills. OJ was still married to his first wife, but the pair started dating anyway. Simpson later got a divorce, and he and Nicole got married on February 2nd, 1985. They had two children during this time, but things were said to be very chaotic. It has been alleged that OJ was abusive towards Nicole throughout their relationship. One of the ways OJ is alleged to have abused Nicole was financially. Due to their prenuptial agreement, she was not allowed to have a job. This caused her to be financially dependent on OJ, which made it harder for her to leave. Nicole called the police several times. As a result of one of those calls, OJ was arrested for domestic violence. He pleaded no contest to spousal abuse in 1989. Nicole filed for divorce on February 2nd, 1992. After their divorce was final, the two got back together. This time was not any better for Nicole. On October 25th, 1993, Nicole called 911 and said that, quote, he's gonna beat the S out of me, end quote. The pair called it quits for good several months after this incident. On June 12, 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson went to her daughter's recital at Paul Revere Middle School. OJ also attended this event. The family then went out to eat at Mezzaluna, but OJ was not invited to join the family. Ron Goldman was a waiter at Mezzaluna, but he was not assigned to Brown's table that night. After leaving Mezzaluna, Brown took her kids to Ben and Jerry's. At 9.37 p.m., Nicole's mother called Mezzaluna and spoke with the manager, Karen Lee Crawford, to let her know that she had lost her glasses. Crawford put them in a white envelope and Ron agreed to drop them off at Nicole's house since the pair was already friends. Goldman left the restaurant at 9.50 p.m. once his shift had ended. During this same period of time, OJ was eating McDonald's with Cato Caitlin at his estate. On June 13th, 1994, The bodies of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were found dead. It was determined that they had died between 10.15 and 11 p.m. Their bodies were discovered by Stephen Swab, who noticed that Nicole's dog had blood on his paw, but wasn't injured. When someone took the dog back towards the house, they found the bodies and flagged down a patrol car. Brown's body
0: was found at the bottom of her front steps. She had multiple stab wounds on her head and neck. She also had defensive wounds. The final cut was determined to be a deep cut across her neck. The assailant then went to Goldman near the fence and put him in a chokehold. He was then stabbed repeatedly in the body and neck. A blue cap, leather glove, and the glasses were found near Goldman's body. After killing Goldman, the assailant went back to Brown's body and stepped on her back, which caused her bruise. There was a footprint leading to the side of the house. The forensics team determined that the assailant walked, not ran from the scene. OJ was scheduled to be at a golf tournament in Chicago and had a red-eye flight at 11.45 p.m. His limo driver, Alan Park, was supposed to pick up OJ and drove around the estate. He testified that he didn't see OJ's Bronco parked outside. The driver tried to buzz the estate at 10.40 p.m., but got no response. Park testified he saw a shadowy figure on the side of the house where a bloody glove was later found. At 10.50 p.m., Cato Kalin heard a loud thump and minutes later, OJ answered the door claiming he had overslept. Park testified that OJ complained that it was hot even though it wasn't hot that night. Although OJ was running late, he did not miss his flight. A broken glass and bed sheets with blood on them were recovered from Simpson's hotel room at the O'Hare Plaza Hotel. Peter Phillips, the former manager of the hotel, recalled Simpson asking for a band-aid for his finger at the front desk. The police tried to contact OJ to inform him about Nicole's death. They buzzed the intercom at OJ's estate for over 30 minutes but received no response. Detective Van Natter then instructed other officer, Mark Furman, to scale the wall and unlock the gate to allow the other three detectives in. The detectives would argue they entered without a search warrant because of exigent circumstances. They stated specifically out of fear that someone else might be injured. The police contacted Simpson at his home on Monday, June 13th. Detective Lang noticed that Simpson had a cut on his finger on his left hand that was consistent with where the killer was bleeding from and asked Simpson how he got it. At first, he claimed he cut his finger accidentally while in Chicago after learning of Nicole's death. Lang then informed Simpson that blood was found inside his bronco, at which point Simpson admitted that he did cut his finger the same day as the murders, but did not remember how. He voluntarily gave some of his own blood for comparison with evidence collected at the crime scene. OJ hired Robert Shapiro on June 14th and started assembling his Dream Team, which was the nickname given to his defense team. He was said to be in a fragile state of mind and stayed at lawyer Robert Kardashian's house. The LAPD notified Shapiro at 8.30 a.m. on Friday that Simpson would have to surrender that day. At 9.30 a.m., Shapiro went to Kardashian's home to tell Simpson that he would have to surrender by 11 a.m. The police then agreed to have OJ surrender at 12 p.m. and thought this would not be an issue because OJ was a celebrity and they didn't believe a celebrity would flee. The press and police waited for OJ, but he did not show up for his perp walk at 12 p.m. At 1.50 p.m., OJ Simpson was declared a fugitive.
1: At 5 p.m., Robert Kardashian read to the press OJ's public letter. He had also written one for each of his kids. This letter was addressed to his friends, and in it, OJ proclaimed his innocence. This letter was assumed to be a suicide note because it included phrases like, quote, I can't go on. He also apologized to the Goldman family and to his then-girlfriend. OJ's lawyer, Robert Shapiro, appealed to OJ to surrender. At 5.51 p.m., OJ called 911 and this call was traced to the Santa Ana Freeway. News helicopters filmed a white Bronco, believed to be owned by Crowley, racing down the same freeway. At 6.45 p.m., Officer Ruth Dixon caught up to the Bronco and noticed that Crowley was driving. When asked why he wasn't stopping, Crowley said that O.J. was in the back and had a gun to his own head. She backed off but followed the Bronco at 35 miles per hour, or 56 kilometers per hour, with about 20 other officers joining in on the chase. Zoe Ter was the first reporter to start broadcasting the Bronco chase. Eventually, nine other news helicopters joined in on the coverage, but the chase was so long that they had to stop and refuel. Television stations interrupted coverage of the 1994 NBA finals to broadcast the incident. The pursuit was watched live by an estimated 95 million people. During the chase, OJ was talked to through the radio by his former USC football coach, and Crowley believes this stopped OJ from harming himself. Thousands of spectators and onlookers packed overpasses along the route of the chase, waiting for the white bronca. In a festival-like atmosphere, many had signs urging Simpson to flee. Spectators shouted, quote, go OJ go, which was the famous slogan from Simpson's Hertz commercials. On June 20th, OJ Simpson was arraigned and pleaded not guilty and was held without bail. A grand jury was called but then dismissed on June 23rd, because they didn't think the grand jury could be impartial. On July 22nd, Simpson entered his plea as, quote, absolutely 100% not guilty, end quote. He requested a speedy trial, and both the defense and prosecution worked for several months to get ready. OJ assembled the dream team that was led by Johnny Crawford. The others' attorneys include his initial lawyer, Robert Shapiro, Robert Kardashian, Sarah Kaplan, Alan Dershowitz. Carl Douglas, and Lee Bailey. The two lead prosecutors were Deputy District Attorneys Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden. Clark was selected as the lead prosecutor. They were assisted by DNA expert ADAs Harmon and Clark. The trial started on January 24th, 1995, seven months after the murder. Judge Lance Ito presided over the case. The district attorney, Gil Garcetti, wanted the trial to be moved to Santa Monica, but the Los Angeles Superior Court decided it would take place in downtown LA. This led to some speculation that the trial may have had a different outcome if the jurors were from the more educated Santa Monica. Judge Edo started interviewing 304 prospective jurors. They had to fill out a 75-page questionnaire. On November 3rd, 12 jurors were selected along with 12 alternates. When the trial concluded, only four of the original jurors remained. The jury was sequestered for the duration of the trial, which lasted approximately 285 days. The prosecution presented a case that focused
0: on O.J. being a serial abuser who killed Nicole when she refused to get back with him. They alleged that Ron Goldman was killed when he entered the yard. Clark said the dance recital caused OJ to be upset with Nicole over a short black dress that she had worn and that he had broken up with his then girlfriend in order to reconcile with Nicole. They played Nicole's 911 call that led to OJ's arrest for domestic violence. The prosecution planned to present 62 separate incidents of domestic violence to the jury. However, Marcia Clark made the decision to drop the domestic violence portion and focused solely on the DNA evidence. She thought the DNA evidence was strong enough on its own. The media speculated it was because dismissed juror Jeanette Harris alleged that the jury was divided among race. Harris was dismissed because she didn't disclose she was a victim of domestic violence herself. She then went on to say that the domestic violence case that the prosecution was presenting was, quote, a whole lot of nothing, end quote. This led to speculation that the jury would not be sympathetic to Nicole's experience of domestic violence. Christopher later confirmed this to be the case. The prosecution decided to pivot toward focusing on the DNA evidence. They had several pieces of DNA and other physical evidence that linked OJ to the crime scene. Some of the most convincing evidence was OJ's DNA next to the bloody footprints near the victim's, OJ's DNA and a trail of blood drops leading away from the victims towards the back gate. Ron and Nicole's DNA profile was found outside of the door and inside of OJ's bronco. Simpson, Goldman, and Brown's DNA was found on a bloody glove outside of OJ's house. OJ and Nicole's DNA was found on a pair of socks in Simpson's bedroom. Fibers from the glove found in Simpson's house matched the fibers from the glove found at the crime scene, which proved that they were a pair. Hair consistent with Goldman was found on Brown, which supported the theory that Brown was killed first and then Goldman. The glove found at OJ's house had hair and clothing fibers that were consistent with Ron and Nicole. The Dream Team presented a case focused around reasonable doubt. They stated that the aforementioned DNA evidence was compromised by the mishandling of criminalists Dennis Fung and Andrea Mazzola. They said that the DNA evidence was contaminated and that the only reason why O.J.'s DNA was present was because it was planted by the police. They also alleged police fraud. The defense also presented information that the murders happened at 11 p.m. that night. On July 14, 1995, Dr. Robert Huzenga testified that O.J. could not commit the murder because he was physically incapable due to football injuries and chronic arthritis. The prosecution challenged this assertion by presenting evidence that he made a workout video. Dr. Huzenga then admitted that OJ could commit the murder because he was in, quote, the throes of an adrenaline rush, end quote. One of the main aspects of the defense was that the police conspired against OJ. They argued that all of the police's evidence was planted with the express goal of making OJ look as guilty as possible. The defense argued the motive was racism. Furman is on tape repeatedly using the n-word with a hard r over 41 times. These tapes were the cornerstone of the defense's argument that Furman was a racist and that he lacked credibility. This set the prosecution case back so they decided to call Furman back but that did not help because he invoked his Fifth Amendment protections against self-incrimination twice. In order to save their case, Darden decided to have OJ try on the glove. Marsha Clark was surprised because they had agreed that they wouldn't do that because the glove could have shrunk due to being frozen and unfrozen several times. The glove also had multiple DNA profiles on it. Simpson struggled to put the glove on, and the prosecution claimed it was due to OJ's use of arthritis medication. In 2012, Darden accused Cochran of tampering with the glove, but Dershowitz argued that this was not possible since the defense only has controlled access to evidence.
1: Cochran had many notable lines in his closing arguments, including describing Van Nader and Furman as the deception twins. He told the jury to remember that Van Nader was the man who carried the blood and Furman was the man who found the glove. In response to the botching of OJ trying on the glove, Cochran famously stated, quote, if the glove don't fit, then you must acquit. When it was time to read the verdict, everyone was on high alert. Then-President Bill Clinton was briefed on the situation, and all LA police officers were placed on 12-hour shifts. The jury only reviewed the testimony from O.J.'s limo driver, Alan Park. At 10.07 a.m. on Tuesday, October 3, 1995, Orenthal James Simpson was acquitted on both counts of murder. The jury had decided their verdict the day before at 3 p.m., but Judge Ito delayed the verdict. After the verdict was read, juror, Lionel Cryer gave Simpson the black power salute. Approximately 100 million people worldwide watched or listened to the verdict. The reactions to the verdict were split among racial lines. Blacks tended to believe OJ was innocent and whites tended to believe that OJ was guilty. More recent surveys have shown a change with 83% of white Americans still believing that OJ is guilty and 57% of blacks agreeing. No matter how anyone feels, double jeopardy is in play, which means OJ can never be tried again again for the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Despite the acquittal, the Los Angeles Police Department has no plans to reopen this case. In January 1997, the families of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown brought a wrongful death lawsuit against OJ in civil court. Due to double jeopardy, this was the only other way to hold OJ accountable for Ron and Nicole's death. OJ's criminal defense bill was estimated to be between 3 and $6 million, and he could not afford the same level of defense during the civil trial. After deliberating for five days, a civil jury found Simpson responsible for the death of Nicole and Ron. The burden of proof is much lower in civil court, which we will discuss a little bit more later. The Mm -hmm. families were awarded $33.5 million in compensatory and punitive damages. OJ has made no effort to pay on this judgment. In November 2006, Reagan Books published what they described as a hypothetical confession. The book, If I Did It, was both written by Pablo and coincided with the Fox special involving Simpson. The Goldman family was awarded rights to the books and published it under the name If I Did It, Confessions of the Killer, with the cover minimizing the word if. In 2007, Simpson was charged with breaking into a Las Vegas hotel room and taking sports memorabilia that he claimed had been stolen from him. On October 3, 2008, he was found guilty and sentenced to 33 years in prison. On July 31st, 2013, the Nevada Parole Board granted Simpson parole on some convictions, but his imprisonment continued based on the weapons and assault convictions. He was released from prison on parole on October 1st, 2017. He currently lives in Las Vegas, where he lives off of his Screen Actors Guild and NFL pension. This money is not required to go to any of his court settlements. Dell and I are united in
0: believing that OJ committed this crime. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence that shows he abused Nicole and that this murder was a crime of jealousy and rage. While we are convinced, not everyone is, and some still maintain that they think OJ is innocent. There are several conspiracies connected to this case. Please note we are not endorsing any of these conspiracies. We're just stating what's kind of out there in the public's mindset. The first conspiracy theory that we're going to dive into is that O.J. Simpson's son, Jason, was the one who actually committed the murders. The theory comes from de- private detective William Deere. Deer wrote the book, O.J. is Innocent and I Can Prove It. Deere collected this circumstantial evidence against Jason by digging through his trash and an abandoned storage locker. He claims that Jason Simpson battled with intermittent rage disorder and assaulted his girlfriend two months prior to the murders. Jason does have an alibi, but Deere claims that that was falsified. Another theory is that OJ has CTE and he unknowingly committed the murder. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a brain injury that is commonly found in NFL players and other professional sports players. O.J. played in the NFL for 10 years and played collegiate football prior to that. The doctor who discovered CTE believes O.J. likely has it as well. This theory cannot be proven while O.J. is alive, however, because there is no test for CTE that can be done while someone is alive. Um, The brain has to be looked at once someone is deceased. And the next theory is a little strange. It says that O.J. hired serial killer Glenn Rogers to commit the murders. Roger's brother also claims in his book that his brother admitted to killing Nicole and Ron. It's a really wild theory. I actually had not even heard of it until we were doing research on the case. Those conspiracies tried to pin the murder on someone else, but this one took a different approach. There's a theory out there that Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson were in a romantic relationship. OJ, despite dating other women, believed that he and Nicole were going to get back together. Nicole, allegedly moving on with Ron, angered O.J., and that's why he stabbed Nicole
1: 12 times and stabbed Ron 25 times. The trials of O.J. Simpson brought up the question of civil liability versus criminal liability. Criminal courts have the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury in O.J.'s criminal trial felt that the prosecution did not meet this burden of proof and found O.J. not guilty. The burden of proof in civil court is the lower standard of determining whether there is a preponderance of evidence. This is the burden of proof that the jury in the civil case evaluated OJ on and they found him liable. Notice that I use the word liable instead of guilty because someone cannot be found guilty in civil court.
0: There are a few other differences between criminal liability and civil liability. Defendants in civil court don't go to jail. Civil courts don't need a unanimous jury decision. In the charge of a wrongful death in civil court, it only needs to require proof that the defendant's intentional and unlawful conduct resulted
1: in the victim's death. And one other thing to note is that in a criminal trial, the plaintiff is the prosecution or the state. And in a civil trial the plaintiff is usually the person that was harmed by whatever tort action that happened so the plaintiffs in the case of OJ civil suit was the Goldman and Brown family The police never seriously investigated any other suspects for the murder of Nicole and Ron. And someone who professes OJ's innocence probably believes that there was a rush to judgment and that bias clouded the police investigation.
0: I can kind of understand that. In the Julius Jones case, we talked about police getting tunnel vision and just zoning in on one person and how that's really not helpful. I do think that there is a lot of evidence that they found against OJ or showing that he could have been a killer, but at the same time, you know, Nicole and OJ were kind of wealthy, well-known people. Maybe someone else could have had it out for them. It's something that the police should investigate or look into.
1: And that's so true. When you brought up the fame and wealth of OJ and Nicole, and as a major celebrity figure, questions did arise about whether OJ was found not guilty because the jury believed in his innocence or if it was his status and fame that clouded their judgment and allegedly the judgment of the presiding judge. OJ was a beloved
0: football player and he had done some acting work and sports analysis too. So even after he was done playing football, he really stayed in the public eye. OJ had been a public personality most of his life and he knew how to interact with the public and get them on his side. And we've said it before, but celebrities seem to be treated differently in the court of law. And again, that's part of because we want to believe the best of people we admire, the people we watch on TV, whether they're acting, playing a sport, anything like that. We want to see them as good people. We don't want to then feel bad and think, oh, this person I really like and follow is a crazed, violent killer. And like we've said before, the wealthy have access to better quality attorneys and they can get things done like forensic testing. And we saw with OJ's dream team, he had the cream of the crop really helping him out. It should be noted that OJ avoided jail time after a 911 domestic violence call by Nicole. And LAPD officer and friend of OJ, Ron Ship said, quote, O.J. Simpson that night definitely got preferential treatment. Had that been anybody else, you or me, they'd have gone to jail.
1: O.J.'s fame helped capture the world's attention and transformed this case into a media circus.
0: It's often referred to as the trial of the century. It's a case that divided the country, but at the same time, no one could look away. And it really became a cultural milestone. I was talking to my mom about it last night, and she said she was one of the people watching the chase. She thought he was guilty right away. Del, do you think if this, if Nicole Brown
1: and Ron weren't killed, do you think you would even know who OJ Simpson was? So I think I would know a little bit about him. Because I do tend to follow, you know, sports and stuff like that, especially football. But the level of knowledge that I have about him and his career are definitely intensified because of this murder case.
0: I know I definitely wouldn't know who he was. I'm not a sporty girl. But it's a case we're still talking about 26 years later. The case changed how America viewed race, celebrity, domestic violence, and the criminal justice system. Johnny Cochran got a court TV show deal after the trial. Marsha Clark got a bonus despite losing the case, and she's written several books and has a TV show, actually, and many other people involved in the case have written books as well. There's countless movies and TV shows about the case, including The People vs. O.J. Simpson, which I really recommend everyone watch, at least for entertainment purposes, and O.J. Made in America, The case and its coverage have even been said to inspire movies and TV shows, including the 2019 series The Fix and David Lynch's Lost Highway. Have you
1: seen any of the shows
0: or movies, TV movies,
1: about oj and nicole so i've seen a couple including the people versus oj and i would say the entertainment value is definitely off the charts it's a really good thing and it's one of those things where you're not watching it for a hundred percent accurate depiction of the events you're looking at it to make sure they get the major details right and then you know entertainment and dramatization can fill in the rest
0: the acting in the show is superb a lot of people won awards for their performances um i highly recommend like we said Despite everything and OJ's legacy, he is still in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the College Football Hall of Fame, and the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. The rules of the Pro Football Hall of Fame voting state that only on-field performance, not character issues, are to be taken into account, which I do understand his legacy is still tarnished regardless of whether he was acquitted or not so it kind of makes me wonder if they're making the best decision I also have a feeling that if they did have to take character issues into play I think a lot of uh, people in the pro football hall of fame would probably no longer be in the pro football hall of fame
1: I think that's so true and it's one of those tricky situations where you're like which one matters more to you know towards someone's qualification for the Hall of Fame? Is it a thing of just looking at their performance and acting like they were just someone who was on the field and didn't have a life outside of football? Or do you take into account the whole picture and how they either propelled the game forward or tarnished the game's reputation by tarnishing their own reputation?
0: I definitely don't think it's an easy question to answer. It's really not as I guess it can be black and white to some people, but I don't think it's as black and white as some people make it out to be personally. OJ Simpson played for the Buffalo Bills and the city of Buffalo, many people are embarrassed and angered by him. They think he kind of ruined, I guess, the reputation of the town, which I think is a little strange, but I can see where they're coming. I I don't know if Buffalo is a a big football city. I know they have a hockey team, um, but I know that sports fans can get very crazy and take things very personally. When we talk about the trial and its legacy, we have to talk about how it was portrayed in the media and its lasting effect on how we talk about trials and crime. The trial was entertainment to a lot of people. It was almost like reality TV before we really had reality TV. Like Dell said, a Simpsons low-speed car chase was watched live by 95 million people. That's crazy. Who I don't know. TV shows don't get you know news like that. I'm sure that like presidential uh, addresses don't either. Um, and speaking of p- presidential addresses. The outcome of the civil trial for O.J. almost upstaged the president's State of the Union address. They happened on the same night. Crowds surrounded the courthouse at both the criminal and the civil trials. And it's said that the media had a let's get it first instead of let's get it right mindset. The prosecution, defense team, and judge became household names. And they were pretty much all highly criticized by the media in the process. Christopher Darden was called a race traitor for serving on the prosecution. Marsha Clark faced a lot of sexism and was called hysterical, a bitch, and incompetent, and her looks were also frequently commented on. The media wasn't very favorable to the defense team either. Something I had read from one of the members of the defense said that they would have a great day in court, but the media would say, oh, another blow to the defense team, and they were really pro-prosecution. And this was one of the first times where the public got to watch an unfiltered trial. This case was one of the first cases in the 24-hour news cycle that we have today, and it really set the standard for, like you said, the media circuses. Famous American anchor Ted Koppel said he was embarrassed by how much time he devoted to the OJ case, And said it was really just what the public wanted and another case like this didn't come along in his opinion until the michael jackson molestation case in the early 2000s and he said that the media really drove the case too and it should be noted that this case introduced a lot of people to the use of dna and forensic science and some say it inspired our, America's interest in criminal t- investigation TV, maybe even CSI, maybe even true crime podcasts. even who knows. And again, people question if this sensationalism causes Nicole and Braun to be forgotten. This, we mentioned this in the Natalie Wood case where someone's death overshadows who they were as a person and the life they led. I think this can kind of be summed up. If you do a quick Google search, you get only a handful of pictures of Ron Goldman. There's, it's really just the one, there's one picture of him that they always showed. And I feel like his life is kind of summed up just by that one picture. That's how so many people know him. And
1: that's so true. And it's, This is a weird case of Ron being the less famous of the less famous. And this erasing of Nicole seems to be a theme with this case. And this all started with them trying to downplay the abuse that she allegedly suffered at the hands of OJ Simpson.
0: This case opened up the issue of domestic violence to a widespread audience. It was generally a behind closed doors topic. It was a, this happens in the home, it's between a husband and a wife. And this case actually helped pass the Violence Against Women Act in 1994. And it also brought tougher laws in general um, on domestic violence. After a 1991 New Year's Eve party, Nicole called the police and said to the responding officer, quote, you guys have been up here eight times before. All you do is talk to him. You never do anything. He's going to kill me, end quote. When we know what happened, we know she was murdered. We can't say for certain that OJ did it. But hearing some her say he's going to kill me and then she gets killed three years later is, it's scary. It's sad. It's unsettling. One in four women in the U.S. will be a victim of intimate partner violence. And in the 1980s, police were trained to screen domestic violence calls, and it was common practice to delay any response time to them. And the reason for this practice was the hope that the problem would resolve itself at home or that the assailant would leave before police arrived. And I'm sure many of you have heard that domestic disturbances uh, for police are some of the most dangerous calls that they get. Finally, in the Thurman versus City of Torrington case, police started to pay more attention to their liability in domestic violence cases and were made aware that they could pay a severe financial penalty if they failed to do so. In this case, plaintiff Tracy Thurman was awarded $2.3 million when she sued the city of Torrington, Connecticut, their police department, after they repeatedly failed to arrest her abusive husband. And the police really do play a big role They're the key frontline services which victims can use to prevent and stop incidences of violence and abuse, and they have the ability to provide resources and temporary safety. If any of you or a loved one of yours are experiencing domestic violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think happened to Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Do you think OJ got away with murder? Make sure you click the subscribe button and you can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Make sure to leave us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you're able to give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.